following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. And Jesus started on his way. A man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with many persecutions, and in this age come to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Their chains shackled their courage, choked their faith, hampered their judgment, and throttled their souls. They think of themselves as owners, where it is they, whereas it is they, rather, who are owned chained to their property and possessions. They are not the masters of their money, but its slaves. These words were spoken nearly 18 centuries ago by a North African bishop named Cyprian uh, as he surveyed the affluence around him. And surely what he described then is even more true today. We, We think accumulating money and possessions will simplify our life and will free us 
But in reality, it's so often the case that they only end up entangling us. And perhaps the most famous cautionary tale of this is our passage this morning in Mark chapter 10. Go ahead and turn there with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We're continuing our series through the gospel according to Mark. Uh, It's the middle of the first century, and Mark is writing to people in the Roman Empire about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. The first half of this biography focuses on who Jesus is, the second half on what he's come to do. And in our passage this morning, in the middle of Mark 10, we once again come face to face with the radical demands of discipleship, the radical demands of discipleship, what following Christ will entail for your life. Here's what I think is the main idea of these verses in Mark 10, 13 to 31, and and therefore, if I'm doing this preaching thing correctly, the main idea of this message. The arms of Christ are open. The arms of Christ are open to those whose hands are empty. The arms of Christ are open to those whose hands are are empty. We're going to think about this in three points as we make our way through the story and the dialogue. Number one, don't grow up. You can put grow up in quotation marks. Don't grow up. That's verses 13 to 16. Number two, don't walk away. Verses 17 to 22. And third, don't fear loss. That's verses 32 uh, to Um, I'm sorry, 23 to 31. So don't grow up, don't walk away, and finally, don't fear loss. First of all, don't grow up. Look there at verse 13. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. It It was customary for rabbis to lay their hands upon children and bless them. But the disciples on this day were having none of it. (laughs) Clearly, they hadn't learned their lesson from just the previous chapter. Remember chapter 9? Look again there at, at chapter 9, verses 35 to 37. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. And yet here the disciples are, one chapter later, shooing children away. (laughs) Jesus is too busy to be bothered. He's got more important things on his agenda. Or so they thought. But Jesus, uh, as, as was the case over and over again in his ministry, he, he refuses to fit into our little categories of expectation. And as we saw last week, uh, for example, he was revolutionary in his view of women. We also see here that it, it's, he's revolutionary in his view of children who were expendable in the ancient world. And don't miss the connection there. It's no coincidence that following on the heels of his teaching about what? Marriage and divorce. He focuses on his care for children. The collateral damage. The ones who are most often affected by divorce. 
Well, how does he respond to the little defensive perimeter the disciples have set up? Verse 14, when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He was indignant. If if you don't have a category for a Jesus who can be indignant, then you need to get to know your Bible better. He saw this and he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them and blessed them. What a picture of tenderness. Uh, Jesus is not too busy for those whom society and even his own followers sometimes deem insignificant. And if he's indignant over children not being brought to him physically, how much more so spiritually? How much does it grieve his heart when we neglect, overlook, brush aside the little ones among us, when we fail to bring them through gospel teaching over and over and over again into the arms of Jesus, Jesus strong and kind. I love how the old Anglican bishop J.C. Ryle reflected on this scene. Quote, let us learn from these verses that the Lord Jesus cares tenderly for the souls of little children. It is probable that Satan especially hates them. It is certain that Jesus especially loves them. Young as they are, they are not beneath his attention. That mighty heart of his has room for the baby in its cradle as well as the king upon the throne. He regards each one as possessing within its little body a soul that will outlive the pyramids of Egypt and see sun and moon quenched at the last day. But the most important thing about this scene is not that Jesus is tender toward children, though that matters. The most important thing is what we read in verse 15. Truly I tell you, anyone who won't receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Some of you need to hear and internalize for the first time in your life that verse this morning. Anyone who won't receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. He's saying to all of us, if you want to go to heaven, if you want to enter the kingdom of the living God, then you are going to have to stoop low. You're going to have to duck your head to enter that kingdom door. I mean, you remember being a kid at an amusement park and uh, standing against that measuring stick, just hoping you're tall enough to be admitted to the ride. But the economy of heaven is completely different. It's not about are you tall enough. It's about are you small enough? And do you recognize it? Jesus is saying you have to be spiritually small enough, humble enough, weak and dependent enough to enter. Friend, the only thing that you bring to the table, you you bring to God's table, the only thing that you could possibly contribute to your salvation is the sin that makes it necessary 
Some of you in this room have heard a lot about the kingdom of God. You've been to church many Sundays of your life. You're well familiar with teaching and singing about the kingdom of God. But as of today, you will not enter it. You will not enter it because you still, you still have yet to humbly receive it. You haven't embraced the king. Instead, instead of embracing the king, you have sought to measure up. You have sought to build your life around things other than God. I mean, sure, I mean, maybe you're not opposed to God in, in a kind of overt way. You're fine for God to make cameo appearances in your life. So long as he doesn't push you off the stage. The story of your life has really, for all the cameo appearances God has made, it's really been about you. And because of this, you deserve to be turned away at the entrance. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, for 33 years, lived the life you failed to live. For 33 years, he lived up to the spiritual stature of true godliness. And then on the cross, he was punished in the place of sinners. He was cast out so that we can be welcomed in. This passage talks about Jesus blessing. He was banished so that sinners like us could be blessed. And it's not too late for you. That, that's what, that's the, the really good thing about Christianity is that it's not like we are going to give you a list of 12 steps or five pillars that you need to go and start working on and then come back and let us know how it's going. No, today, your life can be decisively changed forever if you abandon. For the first time in your life, you truly abandon your love affair with sin and turn and run into the Savior's arms. And what you will find there are not just open arms, but everlasting life. But what's so tragic, what's so tragic is that even with that glorious news that should be the most liberating, exhilarating thing you've ever heard, we in our selfishness are tempted to yawn. What's so tragic is that even though no one is too weak for Jesus, too bad for Jesus, many think they're too good. They think they deserve God's favor. Some of you in this room still think you deserve God's favor even though you've never sought it on his terms. And now Mark says, okay, I'll illustrate this for you. Here is exhibit A. That's point two. Don't walk away. Verse 17 as. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? One commentator reflects, no one heard Jesus teach in Galilee. No one who heard Jesus teach in Galilee asked a question of such magnitude. No one who heard Jesus teach in Galilee asked a question of such magnitude, nor indeed have his own disciples. At last, Jesus is asked the essential question, capable of divulging the meaning of his ministry. What must I do to inherit eternal life? 
It's an earnest question. And from everything we can tell, it's sincere. But first, Jesus double-clicks, not on the question, but on the address, on on the way that he was addressed. Verse 18, why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. Jesus isn't denying here that he's good or that he's God. He's simply meeting this guy where he's at and getting him to think. He wants him to think it out. If I'm just a rabbi, why are you calling me good? And if I'm truly good, then perhaps I'm more than a rabbi. Or from another angle, if if only God is good and you've just called me good, what does that make me? See, we'd expect Jesus to respond to this question differently than he does. We, we, I think, would expect him to respond to this paramount question, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to inherit eternal life with something like, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. But that's not what he says here. Because he sees this guy's heart. And he knows it's going to require a different tactic. Verse 19. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. This is a summary of what's called the second table of the law. Commandments 5 to 10. And that's where Jesus goes. To what's outward and visible to others. See, in the Ten Commandments, the first table, Commandments 1 to 4, are vertical in nature, having to do with your relationship with God. Commandments 5 to 10 are horizontal, having to do with your relationship with man. And that's where Jesus goes. Verse 20, teacher, he declared, that this guy declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Now, before we roll our eyes and assume he's lying, or boasting, we should realize that actually this is probably not so much a picture of arrogance as it is of vigilance. I mean, remember Paul in Philippians 3 when he said that prior to his conversion with respect to law keeping, he doesn't just say, hey, I, I did pretty well. He says, I was blameless, and we have no reason to doubt this guy either. He gives the answer we'd expect if he wants to be received. You, you want my moral resume, Jesus? Is that what you've asked for? Here you go. I mean, this guy has got it going on. This is the quintessential Israelite. He's an up-and-comer, a rising star. Luke even tells us he's a man of authority, a ruler. Any Jewish mother would have wanted this guy as a son-in-law. I've done all these outward things, Jesus. You asked, I'm telling you, that I've kept all this stuff since I was a boy, which is the exact answer Jesus wants. He's led the witness the whole way. Now it's time to go after his heart. Verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. That is an easy to miss little statement. And it's one of the most beautiful you'll find in your whole Bible. Jesus looked at him and loved him. He doesn't hear the words, all these I have 
all these commands I've kept since I was a boy and just kind of respond, no, you haven't. Don't you realize that what matters is the heart? Have you not heard the Sermon on the Mount? No, he doesn't scoff. He doesn't sneer. He, he just looks at this guy and his heart just starts to swell with love. But his tenderness, which we ought not miss, his tenderness does not make him timid. One thing you lack, Jesus said. One thing you lack. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. All the dramatic tension has been building, building, building to this moment, this punchline where Jesus puts his finger on the one thing, the one thing that's an obstacle, that's in the way for this guy. And that's his love affair with stuff. Which is why Jesus says, interestingly, you've got to go before you can come. Notice the order there. Go sell your possessions, then come follow me. This doesn't mean, by the way, that every would-be Jesus follower needs to sell all their possessions. In fact, this is the only one this guy is the only one to whom Jesus says this, but the principle is universally applicable. It's applicable to everyone in this room. Jesus Christ loves you too much to let you keep loving things above him. Jesus loves you too much to let you treasure things above him. About what might he look at you and say one thing? you lack. Even if you're a follower of his, even if you are a believer in Jesus, a Christian, what might he challenge you with? What might be the thing that he says, hey, one thing you are tempted to lack? What's that one thing that's getting in the way of complete loyalty to him? See, this man may not have understood why Jesus took this this tactic. Like, he may not have understood exactly why Jesus said these words, but he should have obeyed anyway. Beloved, biblical obedience doesn't require perfect understanding. Biblical obedience doesn't require perfect understanding. It only requires trust. Trust that when you do come to Jesus with empty hands, truly empty hands, he can more than fill and satisfy your heart. Well, how does this man respond to, the, to the, this startling, radical request? Verse 22, at this, the man's face lit up and he said, Lord, I'll leave everything to have you. No. Instead, we read something tragic. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus Christ loved this man enough to tell him the truth. But this man loved possessions too much to make the trade. I mean, there was an asterisk for him. I will follow you, good teacher. I will follow you, 
if I can keep everything else. I will follow you if I can have it all in addition. Oh, friends, hear me clearly. The Christian life is not just about adding Jesus. It's also about subtracting idols. God substitutes. When you trust Jesus, by definition, if you're trusting him in a genuine, saving way, when you trust Jesus, you are declaring war on anything else that you're tempted to trust for security or salvation. And when Jesus says here, one thing you lack, he's referring above all to what? To whom? To himself. You lack me. You have lacked me and you will still lack me and all that I am for you because you're in love with little counterfeits. Every human being on the planet and in this room is seeking happiness. It's it's been observed before that people don't wake up on truth quests. People don't wake up thinking, how can I discover truth today? No, people wake up on happiness quests. And there's nothing wrong with that. We were made to be on a happiness quest. The problem is not that we're seeking happiness. The problem is that we settle for small things. We seek it outside of the source. In a 2005 commencement address, the late American novelist David Foster Wallace captured profoundly this primal human dynamic. Wallace was not a Christian. I believe he was an atheist. And yet these words strike a profound spiritual chord. Listen to what he said to these college graduates. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally bury you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, and you will end up feeling like a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious. They are default settings. See, the thing about idols is that they're rarely bad things in themselves. An idol is a good thing gone bad. It's, It's giving something good that was created by God for enjoyment, giving that good thing a promotion it doesn't deserve. It is treating the gift as if it's the giver. And the scariest thing about idols 
is that they don't just exist out there. It would be very easy to preach a sermon where I just rail on the culture out there and their idols. Idols are lurking in this room because we are in this room. As John Calvin famously said, our hearts are idol factories. Idol factories. And we churn them out prolifically. But even though We're prolific at it, even though they're prevalent. They're awfully difficult to detect, aren't they? Because here's why. They're hard to detect because they so rarely look sinister. That's my savings account, not an idol. That's my body, not an idol. That's theological precision, not an idol. That's my ministry for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not an idol. That's my child. Not an idol. See, when it comes to detecting and diagnosing idols, we need to know what to look for. Here's just a small sampling of of the kind of questions you could ask yourself. You're you're not going to be able to write them all down You can email me if you want them, but just listen to these questions that you should ask yourself and meet up with another brother or sister in this church to discuss. What do I daydream about? In other words, where does my mind tend to drift, tend to go in those moments, those rare moments where nothing is vying for my attention? What do I most frequently fear? In other words, what's my nightmare scenario? What do I spend money on most effortlessly? Like I don't even feel it when the money's going there. What group, what person, or especially what group am I most tempted to demonize? Because of course we're most tempted to demonize the opposite of what we idolize. When I don't get the answer to prayer that I wanted, which happens to all of us, God is too wise and too good to say yes to every one of our prayers. When you don't get the answer that you wanted, are you sad or are you angry? Disappointment is understandable. Disappointment is natural. But despondence, despair, reveals that maybe something that was too important to you, something that was taking the place of God in your heart has been threatened or lost. In Mark 10, this young man's idol was money and it exerted such great holding power that instead of trusting Jesus, just taking him at his word, even if he didn't fully understand what Jesus was up to, instead of just trusting Jesus, taking him at his word and giving it, the money, the possessions, giving it away, instead he walked away. Which of course leaves us to wonder, I mean, in my curiosity, I'm like, well, where did he then go? He's still on the happiness quest. Did he go and find another rabbi who would give him another answer, something that he wanted to hear? He'd counted the cost. 
That's the thing. You know, Jesus tells us to count the cost. This guy, it seems, counted the cost. But his calculation was distorted. His calculation was distorted, and therefore his junk, his junk glimmered more than Jesus. I mean, imagine someone getting up every hour of the night, all right, setting an alarm for every hour of the night so that they could get up and shuffle downstairs and walk outside to make sure that their trash can is still there and no one has taken it. It's a, it's, a, it's a ludicrous thought, but beloved, in light of our immeasurable, eternal wealth in Christ, that's basically what we do when we fix our attention and our energy and our affection on things that moth and rust destroy. When we forget how ludicrous it is that we are dust. That's what we are. Okay? It's not an insult. It's an observation. We are dust, boasting in our collections of dust. And apart from God's invading, illuminating grace, we will continue to miscalculate. We will continue to attach inflated price tags to things that are not the Lord. This man came to Jesus with a good question. I'll give him credit for the question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It was a good question about his soul. And I'll give you credit for being in church this morning. It's a good thing. It was a good thing for this man to ask this question. And it's a good thing for you to be in church this morning. But make no mistake, none of what you've done matters if you don't believe God's word. None of what you've done matters if you leave unchanged, if you don't rearrange your life based on what you've heard from him. The most important thing about you, friend, is not the questions you bring to Jesus. The questions you bring to Jesus matter, but the most important thing about you is your response to his answers. Again, he doesn't call every would-be follower to relinquish all their possessions, but he does. I can make eye contact with every one of you in this room and say he does call you to repent and believe in the gospel. To add him by subtracting those idols, those substitutes for him. Don't walk away. When you hear him challenging you, when you hear him summoning you, it's not a casual invitation from a buddy. It is a royal summons from a king. Don't walk away. Number three, don't fear loss. Don't fear loss. Verse 23 Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom for the rich to enter, to, uh, to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Don't ever think that Jesus couldn't strategically deploy some humor. This word picture is absurd. It, it, it's, it, it'd be easier, Jesus is saying, it would be easier to cram the largest Palestinian animal through the eye of a sewing needle than to fit a rich person through the door of God's kingdom. 
He's not saying categorically rich people can't be saved. He's saying, though, it's incredibly hard. It's incredibly hard for them to be. Why? Because they have every reason to trust in themselves. In our church covenant, we promise that we will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the ministry of the church, to the needs of our neighbors, and to the spread of the gospel from the heart of Virginia to the ends of the earth. This promise we make to one another is not limited to our money, but it's not less than our money. In fact, because money uniquely, because money can have such holding power over our hearts, it can be especially beneficial to give it away. I mean, because when you give away money and stuff, do you know what you're doing? You are writing your own declaration of independence. When you give away your money and your stuff, you are declaring independence from those things. You're saying, I don't need it. I don't need it. My job up here is not to tell you exactly what to give away or how much to, uh, how much to give, but I can tell you this. If you're wondering, how much should I give? Enough to feel it. Enough that you're going to need faith to give away that much. Well, lest we miss where we are in Mark's flow of thought, here's the connection between this scene and the previous one. It's actually a pretty simple connection. It's why I'm preaching both of these scenes in the same sermon. It's enormously difficult for someone enamored with riches, okay, what, what their hands have created or accumulated. It's really hard for that kind of person to receive the kingdom like a little child. It's not a natural thing for the, spirit, for, for the materially wealthy to see themselves as morally bankrupt. Verse 26, the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Like this is bursting their categories. They had been raised to assume that the wealthiest were the righteous. Why else would God have blessed them? And the same conventional wisdom courses through our veins today, doesn't it? If you're healthy, if you have well-adjusted kids, if you live in that neighborhood, if you got that promotion or that opportunity in church, then surely you're doing something right in heaven's eyes. No. Not then and not now. And as this dizzying realization sets in, the disciples are dumbfounded. Do, do you see the, the logic that, is, that has them at their, at their wits in? If that guy, if that guy with all his religious devotion and riches can't save himself, then who can? Who can be saved if he can't? Verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. That is being saved, being able to give up whatever's keeping you from Jesus. With man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. A nominal Christian, 
That may describe some of you. That's a Christian in name only. A nominal Christian hears something like this and feels a little insulted. A real Christian hears this and is relieved. God can do what humans cannot. That means there's hope for any of us. There's hope for me. This is the kind of optimism that only grace can produce. Verse 28, then Peter spoke up, as was his custom. We've left everything to follow you. Verse 29, truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel, for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. This is such a beautiful promise to me because, again, Jesus doesn't respond quite the way we would expect. He's always responding differently than we would expect, than anyone would invent or make up, which is another reason why I think the Gospels have the ring of authenticity. I don't think you would make things like this up unless they really happened. He doesn't cut Peter down to size. Peter, once again, blurted out, in contrast to the rich man, right? We've left everything to follow you, Jesus. Look, we can see that guy's back receding on the horizon, but we're still here. We've left everything to follow you. Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Jesus doesn't make this a get-behind-me-Satan moment. No, Peter exclaims, we've left everything to follow you. And he basically and graciously says, yep, you have. I see, Peter, what you've given up. I see what all of you guys have given up. And it, I promise you, will be worth it. For those who make sacrifices for Jesus, a full return and more will be given. That's what these verses here at the end are about. This is the ultimate kingdom ROI. And much of the return will be in the form of what? According to verse 30. In the form of spiritual family. Look again there at verse 29. No one who's left home, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive, here it is, a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields. What's this talking about? It's talking about the family of God, the church. Listen to how J.C. Ryle, whom I quoted earlier, listen to how he puts it. Quote, a believer may be much cast down, much cast down by afflictions cast upon him on account of his religion. But let him rest assured that he will never find himself a loser in the long run. Christ can raise up friends for us who shall more than compensate for those we lose. Christ can open hearts and homes far warmer and more hospitable than those closed now against us. Above all, 
He can give us peace of conscience, inward joy, bright hopes, and happy feelings, which shall far outweigh every pleasant earthly thing we've cast aside for his sake. In other words, there are blessings awaiting you in eternity and even in this life that will outweigh the sacrifices. What you give up, you will get back in greater measure, though be honest, it's not always an equation that neatly shows up on a spreadsheet. But rest assured, the local church, this is not just religious mumbo-jumbo. We're staking our lives on this. Rest assured, the local church and the glories of heaven will make amends for all. Some of you may know the name Nabil Qureshi. He was born in 1983, same year I was, in California to Pakistani immigrants into the most tight-knit, loving, devoted family he knew. And his whole world was organized around one thing. His whole life around one blueprint, Islam. By the age of five, he had read the whole Quran in Arabic. From a young age, his parents trained him to defend his faith and refute other religions like Christianity. In August 2001, a month before 9-11, as Nabil was starting his freshman year, not in California, but at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, less than two hours from here, he spotted another student reading a Bible. His confidence swelled. He approached the guy named David and began challenging his Christianity. But instead, it led to a friendship and ultimately to Nabil's conversion. You can read the remarkable story in his book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. He writes this, quote, For devout Muslims, following the gospel is more than a call to prayer. It is a call to die. I knelt at the foot of my bed and gave up my life. A few days later, the two people I loved most in this world, he's referring to his parents. He says they were the, the, the greatest parents he had known among all his friends. That They were amazing parents. The two people I loved most, most in this world were shattered by my betrayal. To this day, my family is broken by the decision I made, and it is excruciating every time I see the cost I had to pay. He later elaborates, ever since my family learned of my conversion, they have not been the same. My mother has tears in her eyes whenever I see her, a quiver in her voice whenever I hear her, an absolute despair on her face. And to be the cause of the only tears I ever saw fall from my father's eyes is not easy to live with. To hear him, the man who stood tallest in my life from the day I was born, my archetype of strength, to hear him say that because of me, he felt his backbone had been ripped out of him, feels like patricide. It was then that I wondered why God had let me live and not just lifted me to himself when I'd found the truth. Why did I have to hurt my family so much? The answer was sought and found in God's word. I tell you the truth. 
Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age and in the age to come eternal life. In 2017, at the young age of 34, Nabil died and went to be with his Savior after a year-long battle with cancer. Without Jesus, he said shortly beforehand, without Jesus, we approach life with the expectation of death. With Jesus, we approach death with the expectation of life. And then he said, all suffering is worth it. All suffering is worth it to follow Jesus. He is that amazing. For you, following Jesus may not entail losing as much as Nabil Qureshi did. You may not lose your family. You may not immediately lose friends. But you cannot escape loss altogether. Because to follow King Jesus is to lose your autonomy, your right to chart your own course, to try to determine your own destiny. But surrendering yourself to him, rather, surrendering yourself to him is the greatest thing you could ever do. You will never look back and think, why did I do that? Why did I stake so much on him? It wasn't quite worth it. I missed out. You will never say that. As David Livingston, the, the great missionary to Africa who died, who brought the, the, the gospel to Malawi and died there 150 years ago this month, as he once said, if a commission by an earthly king I mean, imagine if an earthly king asked you to do something. If a commission by an earthly king is considered an honor, how can a commission by a heavenly king be considered a sacrifice? Well, Jesus sums it up in verse 31, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. All three vignettes we've seen, the children, the rich man, the disciples, they're all illustrating this one principle. And the lesson is not just competition, verse 31. It's not, okay, I'll, I get it. I get this kingdom logic. I'll race to the back of the line so that I can then be counted first. No, the point is contentment in Jesus. And when you are, it will keep you from angling and jockeying to get ahead and to step over others in the process. But where, and as I conclude, where can you find such contentment? I mean, where can you derive such counterintuitive, countercultural power? It's not by staring at Nabil Qureshi. It's by staring at the one who gave up far more than Nabil Qureshi or any missionary or disciple ever did. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. 
The Son of God left eternal wealth to take on human flesh and plunge himself into our spiritual poverty. And he did it for our eternal joy. See, the the rich man in Mark 10 was unwilling to leave everything for Christ. But what he didn't realize was that the man he was talking to had left everything to come for sinners like him. It's like Jesus is saying, I had wealth and comfort and status beyond your wildest dreams. And for the joy set before me, I gave it all up. I lost infinitely more than any martyr ever has for a cause. And it was for the sole mission of saving you, getting you, having you. And if I left all the riches of heaven for you, Surely you can hold loosely to your possessions for me. See, we'll only be freed from the chokehold when we find our real spiritual wealth and joy in Jesus. And then money will just be money, a resource, not a king, a wonderful tool, but not a God. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would liberate us afresh this morning. Liberate us from the love of money or anything that might get in the way of loving and treasuring you. And Lord, we thank you that the ultimate power for this comes from your Holy Spirit as we stare at the gospel of a God-man who left everything to come get us. We pray that would melt our hearts and that that would propel our faith as we try to hold the things of this life loosely and stay closely attached to you. It's in the beautiful name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.